0: Well, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 11, where we're continuing on. We've kind of made it through the first half of the chapter, and in the first half of that chapter... Uh, As we have learned, it's about prayer and about prayer that's focused around the kingdom of God. We are to pray that God's name would be hallowed. We are to pray that Christ's kingdom would come. We are to pray that our daily needs would be met so we could live for the glory of God and hallow his name and participate in that kingdom coming. And so that is what we learn in that first half, all of those things about prayer. And now when we get to verse 14 and following, there is a contrast between the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of God. Now, Satan surely is the master deceiver. I think this is apparent in that even many today who call themselves Christians oftentimes never even think about the angelic conflict that is raging around them. I mean, if you were to come up to the average Christian and say, you know, are there demons? Are, is Satan real? Or are there holy angels? They would say yes, but they're kind of, oh, almost mythical, kind of a biblical fiction that, uh, we read about in the pages of scripture, pretty curious, but a lot of people in their day to day lives never even think about them. We, we don't think that, you know, there, there's a war raging and, and I'm involved in this war. One of the great blessings of the Gospels is that they describe for us in certain portions in great detail what is happening in the spiritual realm. And the reason that they do is God wants us to know what's true, what's real. Satan's lies and deceptions are exposed in the gospel so that we can see what's happening in this parallel universe, this spiritual realm that kind of runs simultaneously with our physical realm. I think we probably all know about the two-way mirrors. Uh, you know, the, there's certain kind of glass that you can put a coating on that glass, and when you stand on one side, it, it looks like a mirror. And yet, it's a two-way mirror because if you go on the other side, you can see through it to what's happening on the other side where the reflective side is. And they use these for like security purposes. Uh, if you go to a store and um, you know, you'll know you see these big uh, windows, these big mirrors up on the ceilings, you're thinking, oh, well, that's so I can look and see how this is. No, there's people up there looking at you. And, uh, you know, in police interrogation rooms and things like that, they put those up so that they can observe suspects while they're being questioned. And, you know, that's kind of how it is. We live on the mirror side of the spiritual realm. When we, when we look around, we see other people, other things, the things of this world, the things that are physical. But demons and holy angels live on the other side of the mirror. They can not only see everything on their side, they can see everything on our side. And not only unlike the mirror, they can move and do move and operate among us. And yet we can't see them because they're in the spiritual realm and we are in the physical realm. But just because we can't see into the spiritual realm like Elijah's servant did that one day and saw the chariots of fire. That doesn't mean that realm doesn't exist. You know, most of us have probably will never go to the South Pole, but that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It's there, whether you see it or not. And God reveals these things in his word so that we, in understanding that there is this huge spiritual conflict going on so that it will change our lives and cause us to live more determined to see him glorified. So that we don't waste our lives being sidetracked and deceived into believing lies about why we are here and what is really going on. By faith, by looking into the pages of God's word, we can see that every day we have holy angels ministering to us. And every day, demons opposing us. Now let's just say, just for one day... I mean, we probably couldn't handle this. It would probably scare us, you know, into unconsciousness. But let's just say that for one day, God said, now, tomorrow morning when you wake up, there's going to be some changes. I am going to allow you to see all the holy angels and demons operating all day long for one day until you go to bed. Now, just think about that. And and what happens is you wake up in the morning and when you wake up, there's this guy. This, what appears to be a man. Now, a lot of times we have these ideas that all angels have wings. When really in the Bible says cherubim and seraphim do. But most of the angels who appear in the Bible look like what? They look like men. And so, you know, I don't know really what they look like. I know they have hair because... James says the demons believe their hair stands on end when they think about God. That's all I know. Anyways, here's these creatures. They used to be holy angels, so they probably don't look like, you know, horns and a tail and red with a pitchfork. They probably look very similar to us, but they're spiritual beings, and there they are. And all right, when you wake up, say, hey, you don't need to read your Bible today. You don't need to pray. You're tired. Just sleep in a little bit more. Yeah, lay your head back down in your pillow. Yeah, sleep in a little bit more. Uh, uh, and you realize, I'm getting up and I'm reading my Bible. As you go to get ready, the more you go to pick up your Bible, I'll send a couple more up here and say, oh, I wouldn't do that. Oh, you know what? You got to get the oil in your car changed. You know what? You better check your email. You know what? Why don't you go out and get the paper? Why don't you just look at the front page? Then you can read your Bible and pray. And it's the whole time. You're just really, no, no, I'm, I'm reading my Bible now. I'm praying Now. And as you go to work, as you're driving around, you see these these beings inside of cars talking to people, following people along, you know, speaking into the ear or however they tempt us. The Bible doesn't say, but they're they're dealing with people. And as you approach your work, you're walking by this little cafe. And and here's like five of them are clustered around this one guy who's being talked to by another guy. And as you approach, you. You see this one guy sharing the gospel with the other guy, and he's fiber. Oh, don't believe that. That is ridiculous. No, people don't rise from the dead. And you know, and they're, they're like arguing to try and keep that people, and all day long you witness that. Do you think that would change your life? It better. <laughs> and you know what? The reason these things appear in the Word of God is so it will change your life and it better. God lets us see these things in the pages of scripture so that we know it's true, so that we know it's happening, so we don't fritter away our life on things that have no eternal purpose. I think every time you were tempted, if you had that special day of vision, you would think, okay, how many are there? I think you'd probably be throwing a lot of ink bottles against the wall like Martin Luther. Martin Luther. Well, Luke, in our text this morning, describes a very interesting event. He's just talked about prayer, a kingdom-focused thing, and now he's going to contrast the kingdom of God with the kingdom of Satan. He's going to let us into an event that happened in Jesus' life. We only color half the text, but we're going to look at verses 14 through 20. So follow along as I read. And he was casting out a demon, and it was mute. And when the demon had gone out, the mute... Man spoke, and the crowds were amazed. But some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Others, to test him, were demanding of him a sign from heaven. But he knew their thoughts, and said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a house divided against itself falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebub. And if I by Beelzebub cast out demons, by who, whom do your sons cast them out? So they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now, from Luke eleven fourteen 14 through 20, I want to point out to you four truths about the kingdom of God in relation to the kingdom of Satan. So you could just understand what's real so you can understand what's happening so you can make sense of the world we live in and especially the responses that people have when you share the gospel with them. And sometimes you you share the gospel with people and you just look at them like, could, could you be that dense? What's wrong with you? And then you think, well, that's how I used to be. Why is that? Well, we're going to find out. And the first thing we want to see in our text is your savior is Lord over demons. Remember, Jesus has just finished talking about prayer. And he says, look at verse 14, and he was casting out a demon. Now, we've seen this before. I'm not going to go into this. We spent eight Sundays on on, uh, demons and angels. You can go back and listen to him on the website. But just to remind you what demon possession is. Demon possession is when one or more demons enters into an unbeliever and takes total control of that unbeliever from within. Demon possession. And because demons enter into people when they possess them, that's why whenever you look at the text that talk about them being exercised or cast out, they're always talk about and the demon came out of or the demon entered into in the case of being possessed. And so here it just says, and he that is Jesus was casting out a demon. Yet having authority to cast out demons is a unique thing. You know, a lot of people uh, today want to say, well, you know, I have authority to cast out demons. And no, you don't. Not in the way you probably think. You know, when you look through all the letters to the churches in the New Testament, you know how much instruction there is on casting out demons? Zero. 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 There is not even a mention made of demon possession in any of the letters to the churches. Why is that? We talked about this before in great detail, but this is the basic reason. Because when someone is an unbeliever, when someone is held captive by Satan to do his will, God has given the church something which is the power of God. And we know what that is. The gospel bomb. That is the power of God for all who believe And so if you want to go toe to toe with the kingdom of darkness, you do it with the power of God. And that power is able to then transfer someone from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. To rescue them from Satan's domain so that they are adopted and become born again children of God. And so we have looked at that. Now, so Jesus in his ministry gave authority to his apostles and to the 70 for a period of time for a specific purpose. And we've we've talked about this when we talked about signed gifts, that the reason signed gifts are signed gifts is because they're signs. They point to something. And in this case, Jesus is doing miracle as he's going around. Jesus is doing these miracles so that. These miracles will point to him as the Messiah, as the king, as the long-awaited son of David. That's the purpose of the sign. Look at the middle of verse 14. And it was mute. Um, the demon was mute or really the demon caused the man who was possessed to be mute And look at the end, the middle of verse 14 again. And when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke. And we've seen this before. A lot of times when demons entered into somebody, they caused physical, what appeared to be medical issues. You know, somebody had seizures or destructive behavior or in this case, the man was unable to speak. And those were not really medical issues. They were actually demonic issues caused by the demon. So once the demon is cast out, the person's healed. And notice that he had gone out, which means he was within. And just imagine you're there at this time. You know, let's say you grew up in, you know, I don't know, Sunnyvale, Israel or whatever. You know, some little podunk uh, town in Israel that's just nothing more than kind of a wide spot in the road. The few little village houses on either side and a little farmland and a blacksmith and just your basic little stuff and in your city is your little town your village is is kind of the the town mute man i mean everybody knows the guy he the only thing he does is say he's he's mute he can't speak he's never been able to speak he's kind of scary too everybody knows him he kind of he's kind of hunched and dirty and matted hair or maybe in taggered clothes and and he's kind of scary you just kind of you know you kind of avoid him because you don't want to he gets in a rage and he's almost animal like and everybody knows him everybody has learned to kind of navigate around to him and people leave him things to eat and he lives in bushes and who knows where he's just the mute man of town so here you are in your little town and here comes Jesus with his disciples. And we've learned at this time that Jesus has a large entourage. A lot of times when when Jesus talks about his disciples, it's not just talking about his 12. We we we've learned that. Luke makes it clear that he had a large number of both men and women who were his disciples, believing in him, following him, ministering to him the disciples, and to other people that Jesus ministered to. So we kinda have this huge ministry task force. But Jesus is rolling into town, he's got his twelve with him behind that, this larger group of disciples, behind that, a crowd of maybe two, three, four, five, ten thousand people. I mean, you know, they followed him around in mass. He was very fun to watch. He did a lot of miracles, a lot of exciting things. And so people just would follow him. And Jesus enters into this town. And as he's walking into the town, all the people know that he's coming because it's hard to miss. And messengers are saying, hey, everybody, come on, this Jesus man, the miracle worker's coming. So everybody's kind of crowding around to see what's going to happen. And as Jesus enters into this town, let's say, this, this mute guy comes out. And Jesus fixes his gaze upon the guy, and the guy looks at Jesus in the face, and all of a sudden their eyes meet, and there's a look of terror on the mute man, and Jesus says, come out of him. And the guy, you know, falls on his knees and just starts praising God. And oh, what would you do if you were there? I mean, well, well, that would be a Wow. Well, look at the look at the end of verse 14, and the crowds were amazed. That's what you do too. Wow. It was incredible. I mean, there was no ritual, there was no holy water, there was no huge long prayers. Jesus doesn't call upon you, Oh, Father in heaven, Lord of Creator, heaven and the earth. He says, Come out of him, healed. And the people were amazed. And what is interesting is this sign then in huge bold letters said, this is the Messiah. This man wields the power of God. And that's why Jesus did this miracle like he did many other miracles. They knew that no man had power over demons, that only God could command a demon. Therefore, the concluding evidence is obvious. Jesus wielded the power of god bingo that's the whole point don't just be impressed by what happened be impressed by what you learn from what happened so the lesson to learn here is that jesus is lord even over satans and demons and why is that important to you well it's important to you especially as a believer to realize that even though all of these fallen angels are all about us deceiving us and working against us and god You don't have to worry because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world The scriptures say the evil one will not touch you The scriptures say that you are overwhelmingly a conqueror through him who loved you that you have everything you need for life and godliness That if you stand firm in your faith Satan will flee So we have all these promises all these resources from god and so you don't need to worry about that So it's good to know that jesus is lord Even over demons secondly we learn from the text that sin-loving hearts refuse to acknowledge the king. Look at verse 15. But some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Now, what, what is all of this, this about? Well, by this time in Jesus' ministry, if we've already learned, Jesus has gotten a lot of enemies, especially among the religious leaders. Jesus didn't take Dale Carnegie's class on how to win friends and influence people. When it came to the religious leaders, he just said, well, you're just, you're a hypocrite. You're a blind guide to the blind. You're poor, wretched, blind, and naked. You nullify the word of God for your traditions. You devour widows' houses. I mean, you know, he said a lot of really painful things. And at this time, they hate him. They hate him. Now, what's interesting is that Jesus has done at this point in his ministry so many miracles around Israel that it is irrefutable that Jesus is doing miracles. You remember what happened when Nicodemus came to Jesus by night and he said, we know that you are from God because no man could do the miracles that you do unless what God is with him. I mean, they were driven. They were compelled to come to that conclusion. But there were some who couldn't handle that conclusion. Who could not stomach that conclusion? Why? Because Jesus was going around saying, you leaders are hypocrites. You leaders are children of Satan. You leaders aren't righteous. You leaders need saved. I am the Messiah. And they could not stomach that. While they could see that miracles were taking place, they could not stomach the teaching of Jesus. And they're looking at their lives and going, no, 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 no. We have the truth. We're righteous. We're the ones who are doing what's right. Our doctrine is the right doctrine. And so if Jesus is attacking us, if Jesus is teaching different than us, if Jesus isn't supporting us, then Jesus must be the bad guy. But the question is, how is he doing the miracles? And somebody, probably with a demonic-inspired thought, he must be doing it by the power of Satan. He must be doing it by the power of Satan. Satan can command demons. Oh, brilliant deduction. And so now these religious leaders have come to the conclusion that Jesus is doing miracles by the power of Satan. And so they're following him around all around the country to kind of as a kind of a religious Gestapo to try and put doubt on Jesus to make people not trust Jesus. They're really working for Satan and they think they're working for God. Isn't that twisted? That is so twisted. They are so deluded and so blind, just like Jesus said. And so they follow Jesus around. And every time Jesus does a miracle, they're there to oppose him. We see it all the way through the gospels, don't we? Opposing him, planning doubt in the minds of the people. So they won't trust him. So they won't follow him. So they won't believe in him. And Satan has those same kind of people today. They are basically traveling rock throwers. And when Jesus goes to a town, they're there and here, the man steps forward out of the crowd and says, with kind of scoffing disdain, he he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the leader of the demons. Now, Beelzebul is interesting. Baal is the Canaanite Hebrew deity. Beelzebul is, seems to have a, suffix added on to it which is either flies or dung heap so they're really saying jesus does this by the lord of the dung heap i mean it's a a serious accusation it is what is called the unpardonable sin when you were around during jesus's time and jesus does a miracle by the power of the holy spirit and you attribute that miracle to Satan, Jesus said, it's over for you. You can sin against me, but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Your eternal damnation is settled by that belief. I mean, it's a major, major thing. They don't want to acknowledge Jesus because in doing so, they would have to condemn themselves. If Jesus is Lord, they know they aren't living for him. They know they aren't aligned with him. They know they're trying to attack him and discredit him. And so they just can't stomach it. It's just like the people you witness to. You know, you go out to lunch with somebody, and you start talking about the Lord, and what happens? Oh, well, I could never, and Christians are just hypocrites, and you know, I've been to church before, and you don't know this, and I believe that. And what about the natives in Africa? And there's so many translations and transliterations. I mean, come on. You know, you've seen it. They're They're just arguing against the cause of Jesus as Lord. They just can't handle it. Look at verse 16. Not only were they accusing him of doing things by the power of Satan, there was another group there. Others to test him were demanding of him a sign from heaven. The word test here could be translated tempted. It actually kind of works both ways. They're either testing him saying, give us something bigger and better. Some other sign from heaven as if that one wasn't good enough. Or they were tempting him in that they were trying to get Jesus to do miracles for the wrong reason to entertain people, to amuse people, to kind of just be a show for them. And the whole purpose of the miracles is so they would would look at him and say, well, who is this guy? Instead, they're just looking for more miracles. This is just nothing more than changing the subject. Don't bother me with the implications of the miracle about what it tells us about Jesus and who he is and what he's doing. Give us something bigger and better. Have you ever had that happen when you're sharing the gospel with somebody? You're sharing the gospel with them. You start to tell them about Jesus and all of a sudden they're talking about their car. They're talking about some project at work. It's it's like they don't even hear you. They uh you know, they run away. They want to change the subject. Well, yeah, mm-hmm, that's fine. Um well, They want to talk about something else. They want to change. That's what they're doing here. They're just playing mental dodgeball. Jesus has just done this incredible miracle. He has displayed the power of God in front of them. And now somebody has stood up and said he's doing it by saying these own stood up and say, let's see something bigger and better. What about the sign? What is it pointing to? What does it tell us? They don't want to talk about that. So they pretend that really they don't hear Jesus. They don't really care about the implications of what he's doing. They just want something bigger and better. This is to fall in love with the sign rather than what the sign points to. You know, I could just see you going down to Disneyland. Everybody's camping by the Disneyland sign. Oh, it's great here by the sign. No, it's great in the park. You know, the parks where all the fun is. You don't camp at the sign. Now, Notice. The second group acknowledges the sign, though. They do acknowledge the sign. They just don't want to face the reality of it. That Jesus is Lord, that he is the Christ, that he is the son of God, that he is doing miracles by the power of God. Jesus, at this time, was presenting himself as the Messiah, the long-awaited savior of Israel. And he did it through miracles. And the question is, we need to ask ourselves, is are you going to accuse Jesus of being a worker of Satan? Are you going to try and play mental dodgeball with Jesus? When you read these things in the scripture, when you hear about them in the word of God, are you going to say, wow, Jesus is Lord and submit to Jesus because he is Lord or just kind of relegate the scriptures to myth or play mental dodgeball? They have attributed to Satan the work of the Holy Spirit. They have committed the unpardonable sin. And now Jesus is concerned. He's concerned because Jesus knows that because of that doubt, that, that lie that has been planted in the minds of the people that a lot of people are going to start wondering, I wonder if Jesus is of Satan. And Jesus knows that if they go there and believe that, they have committed the unpardonable sin, and they will be damned for eternity. So Jesus now goes in to refute their argument, and he does it in two stages. This brings us to our third point. Your enemy is not at war with himself. Look at verse 17. Verse 17. It says, but Jesus, he, Jesus, knew their thoughts. I'll just stop there. You know, if you're married and you've been married for a long time, you get to know your spouse pretty well. And you can, you know, think, my wife's probably thinking this. But you don't know her thoughts. You can be pretty good at guessing her thoughts. But you don't know them. But God knows our thoughts. God knows everything we think. That's kind of scary, isn't it? That is scary. And Luke wants us to come to the obvious conclusion. Jesus can read people's minds. Therefore, Jesus is God. He is Lord. He is not only able to command demons, but Jesus knew what they were thinking. Look at the middle of verse 17. then Jesus said to them, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and a house divided against itself False. Now, this is kind of an easy little illustration. Isn't it true that, you know, you can't go to war with somebody else if you're fighting among yourself? I read an interesting little uh, anecdote in uh, R. Kent Hughes' commentary on Luke where he, he talked about the 1986 L.A. Peace March. Where all these people were all assembled together and they were all going to march from L.A. to Barstow to oppose war. The problem is, is they all began to argue with one another. They got in fist fights with one another. They were struggling to see who would be leader and how the march would go and how they would do it and where they would stop. And pretty soon the whole march fell apart because they were warring among themselves. And everybody knows that that's the case. You can't be fighting among yourself and then wage a war. It's ridiculous. Look at verse 18. Jesus having brought them this little cute little simple little illustration they're all going yeah that that's true kingdoms can't fight against themselves and then wage a war he says in verse 18 if satan also is divided against himself how will his kingdom stand and the implied answer is it can't for you say that i cast out demons by beelzebul i mean what could they say the answer's clear i mean the only really argument they've used against him wielding the power of god of being who he says he was is this excuse that he's doing miracles by the power of satan and so jesus is very simply just removed that excuse from them now what are they going to do the other people were just hiding mentally show us another miracle they didn't even offer an excuse of course satan wouldn't empower his workers to undo what he's trying to do that would be stupid But Jesus, desiring to make them face the truth, isn't through with them yet. He now is going to take their face and push it in the truth. Because he wants all of them, he wants all of us to be without excuse. And so your Savior brings with him the kingdom of God. Look at verse 19. Jesus says, if I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? That was a good question. That was a brilliant question. Because the Jewish leaders at that time, the Jews, they, were, they believed implicitly in demons and angels. When you read from Colossians, they even fall into angel worship. And so they believed in them implicitly. And some of their sons, that is some of the sons of the Jewish leaders, were professional exorcists. Going around with great pomp and circumstances, attempting to cast out demons. Jesus' question is simple. The implied answer is simple. Okay, I want to know this. Who, who helps your sons cast out their demons? Now, he knows what they're going to say. He's, they aren't going to say, well, uh, Satan? No. Um, they're going to say, well, well, our sons cast him out by God. Obviously. And so that's exactly the point that Jesus wants to make. They are now forced to acknowledge that demons come out by the power of God. And I just cast out the demon. And then notice what he says. Verse 19. So they, your sons, who are exorcists will be your judges. Because even they can tell you. That demons come out only by the power of God. Look at verse 20. But if I cast out demons by the finger of God. Now. Now. If you look here, pretty much all the modern translations have this. I'm not quite sure why, but um, where it says, but if I cast out demons, that if there is what is called a first class conditional and it should better be translated since I cast out demons by the finger of God. You see, he has just argued very clearly and forcefully that he couldn't be. Power Empowered by Satan because Satan doesn't war against himself. That the only way demons can be cast out is the same way their sons do it, by the power of God. And now he's saying, since I cast out demons by the finger of God. See, it gives it a whole different emphasis there. The expression, finger of God, is a synonym for the work of God. You remember in the Old Testament, there was something that was written by the finger of God. You remember what that was? The Ten Commandments, right? on those tablets of stone they were written by the finger of god there's another place that talks about the finger of god and i think it's what jesus had in mind here in this text it's in exodus chapter 8 verses 18 and 19 when moses is doing the plagues and one of the plagues remember he took some dust and threw it up in the air and you remember what happened to that dust it turned into biting flies or gnats and then they just multiplied and just swarmed it just covered all of egypt as one of the plagues and When this plague happens, the magicians are trying to copy the things of God. But this is what Moses writes in Exodus 8, verses 18 and 19. The magicians tried with their secret arts to bring forth gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh hardened his heart and did not listen to them as the Lord had said. Now, think about that. Moses performed miracles by the power of God. Jesus performed miracles by the power of God. Moses was a messenger of God, and so was Jesus. Moses spoke the word of God, and so did Jesus. And what's interesting, it was clear that Moses had done this miracle by the finger of God. And it was clear that Jesus had done this miracle by the finger of God. And it was clear that Pharaoh, who was a leader of Egypt, hardened his heart against the truth. And it was clear that they were doing the same. I mean, the parallels are pretty striking. And so Jesus is just pressing their face into this correct conclusion uh, to his miracle. Look at the end of verse 20. Then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Bingo! That is what's happening! Right now! In your face! Now remember we talked about the kingdom a while ago? We prayed that kingdom come, we learned about the universal kingdom, that God is ruling his whole universe, and he does this, ruling all things. There's this universal rule of God, that's called his universal kingdom. That's always been happening, since God has always been sovereign to rule over his creation. But we also talked about another kingdom, the kingdom that Jesus tells us to pray for, and that is the kingdom of the Father, the kingdom of God, or his kingdom here on earth. We saw that they were synonyms in several passages. And what did we learn there? That that is that thousand-year reign of Christ upon the earth. That is when Jesus comes back in glory to set up his kingdom where he will rule and reign in righteousness. That is that future kingdom. So the question is, what's happening here? Well, obviously, it couldn't be the you know, the universal kingdom, that was already happening. Obviously, it's not the future kingdom. Otherwise, you know, that would have happened. It didn't. So what's going on? Remember when we talked about what is a kingdom? What is necessary for a kingdom? We talked about several little necessary ingredients of a kingdom. If you remember, you got to have a king. You to have a kingdom, got to have a king. Secondly, that king has to have power and authority thirdly he has to have an area a territory a sphere of dominion and finally he needs to have subjects you get all those ingredients together you got yourself a king well what's interesting is we have all those ingredients here we have jesus the king exercising authority and power over his creation and he's got his subjects and what he's saying is Guys, the kingdom of God is standing before you in your midst. I mean, that's pretty radical. And Luke phrases this, this whole text to drive that point home, to make a contrast between what is going on in the minds of the children of Satan and what's going on in reality in the mind of God. They're making excuses not to believe. And he's saying Jesus wields the power of God. Jesus knows their thoughts, which makes him God. And Jesus just says, the kingdom of God has come upon you now. You see, when Jesus first came on earth, he came to present the kingdom of Israel. And most of us know that they rejected him. They crucified him. They wouldn't receive him as their king. And so Jesus is saying right now, the king with power, dominion, and subjects exercising authority over his creation is standing in front of your face. You know, there's a kind of person who knows the truth, who understands the truth. And these are the kind of people who you say, now, do you believe that Jesus was born of a virgin? Oh, yeah. That he lived a perfect life? Oh, yeah. That he died on the cross for sinners, yeah. He was buried and rose again the third day. Oh, yeah. They know all of this about Jesus, but they won't submit to Christ as their Lord. They still won't believe. And it's not that they have really any excuses other than the fact that they just don't want to believe. They don't want Jesus reigning over them. And maybe you're one of those people. Maybe you're one of those people. Maybe you're in grade school and, you know, your parents have taught you the scriptures and you've grown up and you've gone to a and you've memorized all these verses, but you know in your heart you don't want to repent of your sins. You don't want Jesus reigning over your life. Or maybe you're in junior high, maybe you're in high school. And you hear me now and you know that what I'm saying is from the Bible and yes... You, in general, believe the facts of what I'm telling you, but you don't want to believe so as to have Jesus be your Lord. And maybe you're a college student. Maybe you've been enjoying college because you've gotten away from home and now you can enjoy certain sins, which you couldn't do with your mom and dad hovering over you. And you can enjoy them as much as you want and whenever you want, and you kind of like that. And if you really were to repent and give your life to Jesus Christ, he would then ruin your life and require you to abandon all of those sins. Or maybe you're married. Maybe you're a husband and you're not loving your wife and you know you're not loving your wife. Maybe you're committing adultery. Maybe you're looking at pornography. Maybe you're engaged in some other wicked activity that you're keeping from her and you're kind of living this duplicitous lifestyle and you know you are and yet you won't submit to Christ. You won't repent of your sins. You won't have Jesus reigning over you. Or maybe you're a wife and you just love the things of the world. You just love fashion. You love you. Your looks is what consumes you. How you appear to other people is what consumes you. You like things. You like romance novels. You like the world. That's what you like. Satan is your Lord, not Jesus. You love the world and the things of the world. Though you walk around on Sundays, though you be, you know, the student or the husband or the wife or the grandparent, though you walk around, you 've got your Bible under your arm, the world is in your heart, and that's what you 're passionate about. that's what you live for. And you know what you 've got us fooled. you have us fooled, but you don't have God fooled because he knows your thoughts. He knows your thoughts. Who is able to fool God? and you know. That God has power not only to kill the body, but to cast into hell. And you know you aren't going to be able to get to heaven and say, you know, on Judgment Day, listen, I pretended to be a Christian for my whole life. And you can't cast me into hell. I pretended. You think that's going to, oh, well, then come on in. I know you rejected my son. I know you lived for my enemy all your life, but come on in because you were good at faking it. You know, is eternity of suffering really worth the momentary pleasures of this life? Think about that. You know, it may just reveal that you don't even believe in God. I know that may sound strange, but it's just true. You're an atheist. You don't believe in God. Because if you did, you would live for God. You don't love god you don't love christ you're just a closet atheist professing to be a christian a very strange convoluted thing but true the people in our text were very religious but they would not believe in the lord of glory they knew the scriptures but they would not submit to the lord of scriptures they were convinced they were going to heaven but they were going to hell. My question to you, is there something keeping you back from repenting of your sins and believing in the gospel to save you? What's holding you back? I mean, there's no use lying to yourself. God knows your thoughts. I mean, you just not play games anymore. I mean, right now, Jesus is listening in. So even though you may be able to fool other people, you're not fooling Jesus. And you just need to tell Jesus right now in your heart, Jesus, listen, I don't want to repent of my sins. I don't want to become a Christian. I don't want to serve you. I don't want to love you because, and just fill in the blank right now. Just fill in the blank in your mind. Just state it. Because he is listening. He knows your thoughts. Tell him, Lord, listen, I don't appreciate your death in the cross for me. I don't appreciate the mercy and grace you've extended to me. I want to live for myself. I want to live for my sins. I want to side with your enemy. I'm willing to call myself a Christian, but I'm not willing to live for you. Just tell him you don't mind if he would save you from hell. You'd actually prefer it, but not if it means giving up your sins in this life. You think, well, I would never do that. Well, that's what you're doing. If you won't repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Just tell Jesus, listen, I want you to judge me. I want you to cast me in the hell because I love my sins more than you. Because that's what everybody does. When they won't repent. That's what they're saying. And you may fool us. And you know what? You have fooled us. But Jesus knows your thoughts. That's what we learn in this text. You know there was a time in Israel. Where Elijah the prophet stood before Israel. And you know all Israel. You know what they said? We worship the Lord God of Israel. But you know what the truth was? They were worshiping Baal. And so. Elijah gathers them all together. Now, they're all very religious. They're all claiming the right God. But they're all worshiping the false God. And Elijah says this in 1 Kings 18.21. How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people did not answer a word. Like some of you aren't answering a word. What do you say to that? I mean, who wants to think of their mind? I follow Beelzebub. Nobody wants that. But that's the truth. If you won't have Jesus, you will have Satan. And don't think you can get to heaven by sitting on the fence. By living your life in the world. Sucking up the pleasures of the world. Living for the flesh. And then to think you're going to get into heaven because you've named the name of Jesus with your lips. And so I say to you, as Elijah said to them, if Jesus is Lord, follow him. If Satan is Lord, then follow him. Make up your mind this morning and don't leave here until you've told God in your mind. Lord, I will not have you reigning over me or Lord. I repent of my sins. I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I receive him as my savior. I trust him to save me, change me, and make me into a new creature. As Joshua said, I place before you life and death. Choose life that you will live. And for the rest of us, we need to look at our lives. Even if you are a Christian, we can be deluded. We can be deceived. We can be sidetracked. And pretty soon we're wasting our life on nothing. On nothing for eternity, the bulk of our effort, the bulk of our money, the bulk of our thoughts, the bulk of our existence is to ignore the spiritual realm, to ignore eternity that's coming, to ignore what really matters, and to just focus and just be absorbed in what's passing away. Oh, Satan is so good at it. And so we need to redeem the time for the days are evil. Don't accuse Jesus of being of Satan and don't change subjects. Your soul is at stake jesus knows your thoughts and so let's all leave here acknowledging that jesus is lord that jesus has power over demons that jesus isn't lining himself with the forces of evil that jesus knows our thoughts and jesus will save you he will change you he will transform you he will make you into a new creature but you must turn your back in your sins And believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Do it. And God will save you and he will change you. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for this text. What a strong and forceful text it is to realize that so often people, we ourselves included, get sidetracked from what's true, from what's eternal. Father, help us to live every day realizing there is an angelic war. Waging. Just beyond the thin film of this reality that all around us there are demons trying to keep unbelievers from being saved and trying to cause believers to be ineffective, distracted, wasting their life when they could be glorifying their creator instead, dulging in the flesh. Oh, father, help us not to be that way. And, Father, if there's anybody here who realizes that they don't love you, they don't know you, that they are really rejecting the Lord and asking to be judged because they will not turn from their sins, I pray that you would grant them grace, grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, that they would come to salvation, that they would be born again, that you would turn them into new creatures. And, Father, they would begin to live a life of devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, help us all to be this way and to help us be that way more for your glory, for your honor, for your future kingdom. We pray in Jesus name. Amen.